I love the gifting that God gives his people over the, over the years in this verse that we just sang, the last verse in hymn 91. Could we with ink the ocean fill? God, what a picture, right? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? Think about the billions and billions of people that have lived. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. It is absolutely incredible when we think and praise God for his abundant and steadfast love. It, it runs so, so deep and infinitely vast that it is hard for us to comprehend. And yet, we know how much God actually loves the world in that he gave himself his son on the cross to die for my sin and for your sin, to take a judgment upon himself that we in our unloving and rebellious and ungodly lives did not deserve. It is truly an amazing love that God has for us. A wonderful singing this morning, beloved. And now we turn our attention back to the Gospel of John, um, as John is leading us really into the resurrection, uh, the crucifixion, resurrection of our Lord, to that statement that Andy read from John 20, the purpose of the book that we might believe in the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we might have life in his name. And that's been the purpose of John, and we find ourselves now at John chapter 7. It's a very interesting section, John 7, and it's verse 53, and we will read through verse 11. So join with me as we read uh, John 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing now as we consider this passage and these verses. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bless us and equip us as we um, look at these verses and uh, we, we see a testimony that, um, that was bearing witness to something that happened in the life of our Lord. And we ask, oh God, that you would help us to learn about our Lord from, from these verses, that you would help us to see what we need to see and to be strengthened where we need to be strengthened, uh, to be reminded of the love of Christ, uh, of his wisdom and compassion towards sinners and ultimately toward us. We ask for your blessing now as we look to this section of scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, these verses actually seem a bit out of place uh, in this passage, especially as it breaks the flow of the passage. Because if you read from John 7, chapter, verse 1, and you pick up again reading in John chapter 8, verse 12, to the end of the chapter, you can see how the unit, those verses, if you remove this, what we just read, it flows together like seamlessly. Like it, it really does connect. And so this, this passage that we just read is likely not part of John's original gospel, but was added later. Now, I, I know that that can be a bit unsettling at first uh, to hear, and people are going to wonder, if this passage is in question, how can we be confident about the rest of Scripture? And how can we be confident that the documents that we have in our possession then accurately reflect the originals that were destroyed almost 2,000 years ago I mean, maybe some of you have thought that. People, people wonder. And the thing is, um, I want to talk about that this morning. So this is going to be, we're going to look at those verses later. But I, I wanted to spend some time talking about that because um, in making that, that statement, I want to show you why and how we've come to that conclusion but also let you know that it, it doesn't undermine the fact that what we have in the Bible is God's, is God's word written to us. So we're going to go about how does that happen. So it's a little more of a lesson kind of than, than an exposition, which we'll do later. But I don't want you to be unsettled by that truth um, and by the attacks that raise up against God's word from passages like this. There's really never been a shortage of attacks on God's word, and Satan is the author and director of that onslaught. And we are not here attacking God's word. We're just trying to be faithful to understand what was actually written in the gospel. Um, and we have 
all kinds of evidence, and we'll talk about that, to go to help us to make that decision. But Satan has always been trying to undermine God's word. Way back in the garden in Genesis 3, he attacks God's word to Adam and Eve, right? And he says, has God really said, don't eat from the tree and so on? So he tries to undermine God's word when when uh, Israel was being condemned and going into captivity and Jeremiah the prophet is, is preaching against them, you have uh, one of the kings that rise up and he actually seeks to destroy God's word. He seeks to burn it actually in uh, Jeremiah, um, I can't, I'm, Jeremiah 36, 23, I think. They, they seek to burn God's word um, and then you have, of course, Matthew 4, 6 to 7, where Jesus is going into the wilderness. And what happens? Satan comes before Jesus and begins to tempt him and begins to say, did not God say twisting and distorting God's word? And Jesus, of course, speaks God's word back to him. And so that same onslaught carries on today. And there are people that will seek to undermine the authority and the inerrancy and the trustworthiness of God's word in all kinds of ways. And I want you to know by, because if you look at your Bible, you probably have brackets around those verses or some kind of footnote that explains it, that the intention behind that is not to assault or destroy God's word. And I say that because there are people that will hold to like a King James only, for example, and they will believe that that is the inspired word of God, and, and they'll point to things like this as say they're destroying and taking out God's word, and I don't want you to be taken captive by that kind of thinking, and I want you to understand why we do this, okay, and why we're saying this. Um, so in the midst of this onslaught against God's word in the world, um, God did make a promise in his word and let us know that it will be preserved and it will be trustworthy and his word is without error. From a theological perspective, we know this to be true. For example, I'm going to read a few verses here. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord what stands forever, right? Isaiah 59 verse 21 as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Isaiah 55, 11, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Psalm 119, verse 89. There's a few others I had, but let's just read this one. It says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So from a theological perspective, we know that God's word endures forever. And according to Isaiah 59, what we read, he wants his word in our mouth, and he wants it in our mouth from generation to generation, from not only for our offspring, for, but for the offspring of our offspring. 
In, in other words, he wants his word in our mouth to continue forward and for us to be able to speak the truth. And so this is God's way of saying, yes, his word will never fail. And yes, I will give you my word in such a way that it can be passed down from generation to generation. And he will be faithful to do that. And so we believe as Christians that we have received from God all that God wanted us to receive in terms of his written word, and we believe that he has faithfully preserved it for us. So we believe that what we have here in our hands as we read from the Bible is we have God's very word written down so that we might believe it and know it and pass on that word from generation to generation. Now, I'm going to explain why we, that is what we believe, but also why we believe, how we've come to the conclusion that this is God's word. But it's different than what you might expect. Some people try to pass by the, the difficulties and the challenges, which we'll talk about in a bit, by just saying that God dropped the word written already in their lap. And you might know the Mormons think that in one sense, right? You have the, the angel that came down and he dropped the book and Joseph Smith kind of found God's word written down and this is what they say is God's word and they cherish, right? We don't believe that as Christians. Or even in Islam, you might have the prophet Muhammad saying that the, the angel came um, and recited God's word to him and he wrote down those words that were recited to him, and so therefore the Quran is God's word. Do you see how they kind of try to bypass the difficulties and the questions about passages by saying, well, we got it directly, fully intact from God, and so therefore this is God's word, and there's no way to really debate whether or not it is. They just claim that it is. Now, we as Christians don't believe that, that that's how we have received God's word. We believe as Christians, like in Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, that God spoke through his prophets in many times and many ways, and finally, as Hebrews 1 says, and finally and ultimately, he spoke to us through his son, and it is by his son and through those prophets and many times and many ways, by influence of the Holy Spirit, according to 2 Timothy 1, 20 to 21, and 2 Timothy 3, 16, as the Holy Spirit carried them along, they spoke and wrote the very words of God down. Um, and so in those original writings that they wrote, we have the word of God. Now, these writings were obviously written over millennia, right? Uh, over 5,000, over 2,000 years, uh, many, many different authors, many, many different places, uh, these words of God were written down and we have them preserved and given to us. And so that revelation that God has given to us by those prophets, by the apostles, by the Lord Jesus Christ, that revelation is complete and it's closed and there's no new revelation that's going to come where someone will say, God told me this that isn't already written in his word. Okay? Now, Here's the thing, if you've lived any life at all, which each of us here have, one of the things we know is that communication is never perfect, right? And people make mistakes, and errors are compounded with each generation, 
And so just like the message in the game Telephone, have you ever played the game Telephone? When you start, you say something to one person and, and then the next person and the next person, and then obviously at the end it's supposed to be funny because after you've gone through five different people, the message is totally different than what it started. And so by the time 2,000 years pass, uh, people might say, boy, it's anyone's guess what the original said. This is, this is the uh, argument. And so when we try to conceptualize how to reconstruct an original document after 2,000 years of copying and translating and copying some more, right? Because we had the originals. We no longer have the originals, but we have copies of the originals. And when over 2,000 years of time has come, we, we try to think and we're like, man, how can you have copies of copies of copies and it seems almost impossible to determine what the original was. And so some people will then take that and say, see, you can't trust the word of God. There's no way to know. And they'll point to passages like this one in John as proof. And the objection seems compelling. And part of the reason I want to do this too is for most of us who have been Christians for a long time, uh, we've heard these kinds of arguments and accusations, and the Lord has confirmed our, our faith and belief in God's Word. But for some of you younger people that are leaving out of your homes, you're going to be going to colleges and universities. You're going to be meeting people that you haven't met before. And what you're going to find is there is a whole world and slew of people um, that seek to undermine the authority of God's Word. And these kinds of arguments are going to come at you. And they're going to challenge you. And when I was taking my philosophy classes in Fresno State, this is constantly the kind of onslaught that came on um, against God's word from my professors, right, from, from friends, from people you're evangelizing with. And so it's not only important for you young people to be able to understand this, but even for us as, as Christians, we want to understand, well, how did we come to know and why are we saying this isn't here? So... Um, so you, you might think the best approach is Mormon, King James-only version, or people, or Islam, or something like that. But that actually doesn't solve the issue. In, in fact, the way that God dealt with this and our own weakness and sinfulness and inability to always keep things straight, he actually dealt with it in a in a very unique way. And the way that God dealt with it by keeping his word, right, how we can get to the original and guarding them from being distorted, the, the way was not the way of the Mormon or Islam, because if he did it that way and he kept the originals, what would happen if the original was destroyed? It would be forever gone, right? And so God didn't say, let me keep this original so everyone can know, because once it's gone, it's destroyed. Instead, what God did is he actually made copy after copy after copy after copy after copy after copy. You understand? He, he copied, he had the world, right, Christians, his children, copied the original over and over and over and over again and had the original basically destroyed and lost. Now, you might think, well, how does that solve the problem? 
And the reason that that solves the problem is that he made sure there were thousands and then millions of copies, so many copies that not all of them could be destroyed. And so the scriptures, they come dispersed abroad to all peoples in an objective form, a written form, so that everyone gets the same thing in a way that protects the document from ever being forged or falsified. So if we can demonstrate that our present copies are accurate copies, then it's fair to say that we have millions of originals all over the world. Okay? If we can demonstrate that this is accurate, then we, say it, we can say we have millions of copies all over the world. So, in one sense, you have to think about it like this. If you think of the transmission of the Bible and the originals as linear, you're going to have a problem. So it's not one copy and then another copy and then another copy and another copy and another copy. It's not linear in the copying. It's actually more like a, a spreading, like a web. One gave birth to five, five to 25, 25 to 200, 200 to 10,000, and so on. Okay, that's, that's the way you're thinking about this. Not, not linear like telephone, because that would be bad. So all of this one gave birth to five to 25 and so on. So all of these are spreading out. And it wasn't by oral, it was by a written word that it was transmitted. So let me give you an example here and how this helps preserve the word. I titled this Reconstructing Dad's Sausage Recipe, okay? The reason is, one of the things that I loved about growing up as a Romanian, a Romanian household, is the food, okay? You look at my physique, you realize this guy likes food, and it's true. And so we were very passionate about our food, and so let's pretend for a moment that my dad had a dream one day about making a sausage he does have a recipe, by the way, but let's assume he actually had a recipe that not only tasted good and great, but it also was good for you, okay? It reduced cholesterol, it fights diabetes, it aids in weight loss, all the things opposite of what is really the case for our current recipe. He made this recipe. And so when he wakes up, he describes the directions on a scrap of paper, okay? He writes down the directions. Then he runs to the store and he buys the ingredients and he makes his first batch. The sausage is a success, so my dad decides to send those handwritten instructions to his five sons and he gives detailed instructions on how to make the sausage, okay? So we each receive it, then we in turn, we make copies of it and we send them to 10 of our own friends, okay? And all is going well until one day, my dad accidentally grounds the original copy of the recipe into a batch of sausages, and we end up eating them, and my dad is devastated because it's gone in panic, 
He contacts his sons who've lost, who have mysteriously suffered similar mishaps. Okay, We did it too on accident. And their copies are gone too. And so the alarm goes out to all of their friends and they have to attempt to recover the original writing. Does it make sense? Okay. So they finally round up all the surviving handwritten copies. And there's 26 copies in all. And when they spread them out on the kitchen table, and you're looking at all these copies of copies, they immediately notice some differences. 23 of the copies are exactly the same. That's interesting. One copy has a misspelled word, though one has, then one has two phrases inverted. It says, mix then chop, instead of chop then mix, okay? And one includes an ingredient that no one else has on the list, right? So here's the question. Do you think we can accurately reconstruct the original recipe? Of course. The, the misspelled words can easily be corrected. The single inverted phrase can be repaired, fix it to mix then chop, and the extra ingredient, because it's not belonging to any of the others, can be ignored. You'd be like, well, that's clearly not there. None of these have it, okay? That is a really, really, really simplified version of what textual criticism is, okay? I sent a link in the weekly email that had an article on how that process works. It's an it's it's introductory, but it's pretty in-depth. So if you want to read more about how that works, you can look at that article. But the point is that when we come to the study of God's word, we know that copies, here's what textual criticism says, the study of the copies of a written document whose original, the autograph, is unknown or non-existent for the primary purpose of determining the exact wording of the original. That's what this science of textual criticism does. And this happens with all kinds of documents and history, history books. You realize that, like, Anything you look about ancient history, this is the process by which they determine what was really written. And so it's not just the Bible. And so when you compare the Bible and the documents that we have for the Bible to other secular documents, the evidence is act, it's actually astounding. So let me, let me list some secular texts for you. The Jewish War, have you heard that? The Jewish War by a Jewish aristocrat historian named Josephus. Um, it survives in nine complete manuscripts that date back to the fifth century. So four centuries after they were written. They have nine copies of four centuries later. Um, Tacitus, who wrote the Annals of Imperial Rome, they have two manuscripts that date from the Middle Ages, and of course Tacitus was even way in the Roman period, way before the Middle Ages, right? Centuries. Thucydides' uh, history, eight copies. Uh, uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars has 10 copies. Herodotus' history has eight copies. Plato has seven copies. 
over a millennium has passed from the original, right? Homer's Iliad has the most impressive manuscript evidence. For any secular work, it has 647 copies. So all of these copies, same thing of the originals, but they are copied um, like centuries and centuries later. But there's only a few of them, okay? F.F. Uh, F. Bruce said, no classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus or Thucydides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, are over 1,300 years later than the originals. You see what he's saying? He goes, no one denies Herodotus because we have copies that were 1,300 years after the original. We kind of accept that that's what happened. For most of the documents of antiquity, you only have this handful of manuscripts and sometimes, most of the time, 800 to 2,000 years after the original. And yet, we have confidence that we can reconstruct the originals. By comparison with secular texts, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament, it's stunning. There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, and some date back to within a few decades of the originals, some, some of them, little scraps that we have. The manuscript evidence for the Bible is extremely rich when you compare it to antiquity. And so that doesn't even take into account all of the other copies in different languages that were made. And so God made true to preserve his word. I mean, you have over 5,000 manuscripts that were written, some scraps, some full manuscripts, within decades and even in some cases a, a century or two to make these comparisons with. Does that make sense? So much evidence that you can look at all of it if you're so inclined, as I couldn't do it, but some can, and you'll see that they can reconstruct what God's word is. And so the fact is that there are variants, but 75% of all of those textual variants, those differences, are not even meaningful, okay? They're, they're not even meaningful. And if they are meaningful, um, they're, they're not possible because of comparisons. And then 24% would be meaningful changes. I'm sorry, 75% are not meaningful, even if they are possible. And 24% would be meaningful, but they're not even possible based on the evidence. And so what you have is, of all the variants that they have in the manuscripts, 99% of them have absolutely no impact on the meaning of God's word at all. Does, it, does that make sense? So what you're having is like, you're having this 99% accuracy in the Bible that we have, 99% of it, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, boy, this, this is God's word, right? Now, there are a couple things here and there, some variants. Um, there's a number of them, a few of them, a number of them, rather, that you have to consider. Uh, but in the scope of how many there are, it's very few, okay? 
And so it's amazing. 99% we know. And so this passage falls into that 1% category. And, and so we need to do our best to make sure that it, that a determination of whether or not it was in the originals, and there's reasons to think that it wasn't in the originals. Does that discount all of the rest of the Bible that we have? No, it's just this section maybe wasn't really written, okay? D.A. Carson, he, he put it like this. Um, he said, these verses, this isn't a direct quote, but he said, these verses present in these verses are present in most of the medieval Greek minuscule manuscripts. So that's later on, centuries later. But he said they're absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us. So these verses are present in some, but in the earliest manuscripts, they're not, they're not present there. And he said... Um, it's also missing from other copies, the Syriac, the Coptic, the Old Latin, Old Gregorian, Armenian manuscripts. It's not in those. And then he says, interestingly, the early church fathers actually, when commenting on John, they omit this narrative. They don't even comment on it, okay? And so there are other reasons given why you would look at this passage and say, I don't think this was originally written by John. Now, here's the thing. There was a reason why this was added in here. And I, I think that there's no reason to doubt that this is an actual event that happened. Does that make sense? You don't need to doubt that this event described actually happened. And so I think somewhere along the line, and, and a, it could be an apostle or a disciple wrote this down. It could be Luke because it kind of matches Luke's writing. But Luke maybe wrote this down and, or some other apostle. And when John had finished his, his gospel, that maybe they looked at it and thought, well, a couple centuries later, maybe this was John's writing. And it seems to fit in here a little bit. And so they inserted it as things went on. I mean, there could be all kinds of reasons why it got inserted, but it could have been an oral tradition that was passed down, or it could have been written and then inserted in. But I, don't, I think it's an actual account that happened. I just don't think that it's part of John's original writing. Now, the reason they probably put it here is, you know, Jesus is being confronted by scribes and Pharisees, Maybe he's, they're giving it as an example of how not to judge by appearances. Remember, Jesus said that in chapter 7, verse 24. And he said, don't judge according to the flesh in chapter 8, verse 15. And so maybe these verses kind of are meant to picture what that looked like. Whatever the reason, I think the events happen. And I think the story is genuine. And I think that it doesn't contradict anything in God's word and or about Jesus. And so these verses are put in here and we can glean from them. And we can be strengthened by our faith in God's word and in knowing Jesus through these verses. And so let's briefly look at them. So we see here 
that a challenge is brought before Jesus, and the challenge is meant to entrap him. And it's hard to know for sure the context of the passage, because we don't know where it came from, but our Lord kept doing what he came to do. And he goes to where the people are early in the morning to teach them again. And if he condemns the adulterous woman according to the law of Moses, then he will appear to be unmerciful and unloving. This is Now we're looking at the text, right? A view that the people didn't hold of him at the moment. If, on the other hand... He refrains from condemning her to death, then he'll be open to the charge of abolishing God's law, which is contrary to what Jesus said. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so they're thinking that they entrapped him. And so they bring this lady before him, but you can see that their motives are antagonistic. They want to entrap Jesus And you know that it's antagonistic because, first of all, the law of Moses itself, which condemns adultery, actually says that you are to bring both the man and the woman with you, and both of them are to be put to death. But what did they do? They only dragged the woman. And they dragged the woman out, and they brought her before Jesus. Secondly, there was a court to do this in. Um, There was a panel of elders to whom they could have brought the case. Instead, they dragged this lady before Jesus. You might think of it more like a lynching than a genuine trial. But as Jesus said to the man who wanted to judge, remember, about his inheritance, Jesus said, who has appointed me to be judge over you? Um, That's what they wanted of Jesus. They wanted him to judge this lady, and they wanted to embarrass and discredit Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to be an official judge in a criminal case. Third, they themselves understood that Jewish authorities, such as the Sanhedrin, had the right, did not have the right to execute the death penalty without Roman authorization. Okay? So all of their motives here, when they're bringing this lady before Jesus, tell you that their motive isn't pure. They really want to trap Jesus, and what they're doing is breaking their own laws in order to bring this lady before Jesus. And so Jesus, he doesn't bring up any of those points. Instead, when he's confronted by them with the question, teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Instead, Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So Jesus doesn't fall into their trap. And instead, he knows that these accusers need to realize that they also are guilty before God. And that they, therefore, are hardly in a position to carry out the death penalty that they demanded of their prisoner. There are all kinds of speculations as to what Jesus wrote with his finger. Some of you, do you guys know what he wrote with his finger? Does anyone know? You can raise your hand. No. (laughs) No one knows. (laughs) No one knows what he wrote with his finger, okay? There's interesting speculations Jeremiah 17, 13, let me read that verse to you. O Lord, the hope of Israel, 
All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. It's interesting. Maybe Jesus is acting out Jeremiah 17, 13. He's writing, some said. Others said that he wrote of verses from the Old Testament, like Exodus, that talk against false, bearing false witness. Maybe. Others, probably the most popular, the one I heard growing up, says that he listed the sins of each of the accusers. Have you ever heard that one? Where they came, he wrote the sin, they saw it, they were convicted, they left, right? And one by one, each person ended up leaving. Fact is, we don't know, but whatever he wrote, it was likely in line with the statement that follows, which is, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And when they heard it, John said, or whoever wrote this says, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and then Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Clearly, not one of the persons there could do that throw a stone at her without acknowledging their own sin. Not one had a completely clean conscience before God's law, especially in the fact that they were violating that very law of God and Roman law by bringing her to Jesus. Jesus knows. He knows their heart. He knows their motive. He sees right through it. And then he touches each of them in that area of their hearts where they keep things hidden from the world, but where God sees. He exposes their sin, and Jesus said in John 7, the world hates him because he does, his, he does that, but he convicts their conscience, and they can't rest in their sin. He witnesses against them, and he stands up, and each of them realize what a sinner that they are, and so they walk away one by one. And then Jesus stands up and says to the woman, Sir, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We'll be done here in a minute, okay? Notice that Jesus does not excuse or cover over the lady's sin. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he's not saying she is absolved or considered innocent before God. She herself didn't even deny the accusations because she was caught in the act of adultery. She was guilty under God's law. She's deserving of God's judgment under the law. Her sin was serious according to God's law. It deserved for her and the man to be stoned, which not every sin under God's law is deserving of that. And Jesus is not underplaying that. He's simply saying and acknowledging that as those people left without condemning her because their approach was wrong, Jesus is simply saying, I'm not going to condemn you in this setting either. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says, neither do I condemn you, he's saying they've left, their approach is wrong, 
says, I'm not going to condemn you either. So Jesus is not saying your sin of adultery was not serious. Jesus is not saying, you know what, I don't condemn you for your sin of adultery. Jesus was not saying to those people, hey man, if you have no sin, cast a stone and stone her, but you're just like, you know, an adulterer too, and so forgive this adulterer like I do, and forgive you of all your sin, I won't hold it account, Uh, you know, you don't have to bring that to account, and so on, and he's not undermining the seriousness of this lady's sin, he's just saying, this whole scenario is wrong, is there anyone here left to condemn you? No, they've all left, Lord, she goes, I'm not, he says, I don't condemn you either, but she was still a sinner, and she was guilty, and she needed to be forgiven, and she needed to repent of her sin, which is why Jesus told her, and from now on, sin no more. He's calling her to repentance, saying, I won't take part in this, but I want you to flee your sin. And I want you to repent of your sin and want you to not sin anymore. You see, many people will look at this passage and they'll say, we should do away with capital punishment. It's unjust, and they'll point to this passage. But Jesus didn't make the point that they too have sin, and therefore they cannot execute capital punishment because we're all guilty. That's not what he's saying. She is guilty, and she's deserving Jesus is just saying that she is guilty to die by stoning, but this is not the avenue. They were guilty of breaking God's law in this entire situation. They sought to take matters into their own hands apart from the means appointed by God. They'd violated their own courts and the Roman law, and Jesus wouldn't join them. Now, what did Jesus want them to know and I'll conclude simply with this. Ultimately, what Jesus wanted them to know and what he wants you and me to know was that we too are guilty before God and we too are deserving of eternal death and that he had come and has come for the purpose of paying that penalty in the sinner's place. And we are called to repentance and faith in him. Jesus reaches out to you and me, beloved, with the same grace that he showed this woman. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And for those who come before him and believe in his name, he will do just that. He will save us. He will make our conscience clean before him and he will exalt his name. And did this lady come to saving faith in Christ? I don't know. But Jesus gave her an opportunity. He taught them a lesson. And I pray it's a lesson that we can learn from this passage as recorded in our Bibles. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and for your mercy and thank you for your kindness. Thank you for preserving your word so faithfully and for giving us copies of copies of copies 
thousands and thousands of copies so that we can see and know that what we have is your very word written. Thank you for raising up men and women who are gifted in this kind of area to use their minds to be able to determine, even though they're not Christians, they, they have a desire to look at old manuscripts and to determine what was there and what was not. And so we know that you are over all of those processes and that you are faithful to your word to keep it and to give it to us from generation to generation. And we're grateful that we have it written. We're grateful that this account of our Lord's life was written, that it teaches us about his wisdom and his love and his compassion, that it shows us how he dealt with this adulterous woman and the things that he said. We thank you for the individual that wrote this down and communicated it, and we thank you for the individuals that decided to put this into the scriptures. And even though it may have not originally been there, Lord, we, we know that it is here, and we are thankful for the lessons that we have learned from it, and we are thankful ultimately for your word that is abiding and is true. And we know and can be confident that when we open up our Bibles, that what we are reading is the very word that you desire us to read and to know and how we might know you better through it. And so thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to see our sin, to repent of it, uh, to see in Jesus a loving, wise, compassionate, and good Savior. And we do, for we pray in his name. Amen.